Our reading this morning is from Romans chapter 16. Just let me fill you in. On the background, we did a series over the winter months on Romans, uh, a team of us, and uh, we got to the end of chapter 15 and gave up. So chapter 16 was left orphaned, and I thought that we could perhaps do it over the summer. We're using the, the way in which Dr. Boyce broke it down as the basis for the, the preaching parts. I say preaching parts, it's not really a preaching text. Um, you can't really preach it in the way that preaching normally is done. It's a teaching text, and I hope that we'll address it in that, in that manner. So let's hear the Word of God. I'm going to read from verse 1 down to verse 16. This is the Word of God. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deaconess of the church at Cancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners. They are well known among the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Amplitus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, my, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kin- kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the farmy of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus and Phlegion, Hermes and Patrobas, Hermas and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, it's very interesting when you come to this last section of Romans. This is as inspired as every other part of the book of Romans. So let's begin there. It's the Word of God, and it's the Word of God given to us not so much by uh, giving us theological language to use, which Paul has given earlier on in this book for various things, but here we have, here we have theological practice. Here we have the practice of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church, and we, we look to Paul and we look to these people for examples as to what Christianity looks like in action in the life of the churches. And we're going to learn something about that here today. Now, it's interesting that at this stage, there is actually no such thing as a church in Rome. That is one church that comprehends all of the Christians that are in Rome. 
So Paul opens his letter uh, back in chapter 1, verse 9, and he addresses it kind of vaguely to, quote, all God's beloved in Rome. In fact, the only reference to a church in Rome is the reference to a church that met in the house of Priscilla and Aquila. And the various greetings that we find in this section that we've just read are mentioning not so much one church that meets in one place as various groups of people who are meeting in households throughout what was for the ancient world a fairly large city. These small house churches gathered in the homes of the named persons that we find in this chapter. Now, I've mentioned before, probably several times, because I never keep a note of how many times I use the same illustration, but I have mentioned to you before that in Rome, if you ever get there, to look out for the Church of San Clemente, which is on the road that leads from the Colosseum to St. John's Lateran, which is, I think, where um, there used to be the Church of the Popes before they built Vatican Hill back in the day. I wasn't there when they did it, but they did it some time ago in the past. And the thing about San Clemente is that it's on three levels. The level you see, the church today, was built in the 11-something, so it's fairly modern. And then under that, that the church on, which, on top of which it's built, Romans did this, by the way, they always built on top of things that were, they wanted to preserve, so they would just build on top of it so they always knew where something happened. So underneath that, you can go to the remains of the, the old church that was built in 300 and something. And then you can go further down to the, to the bottom basement, and there you come across a, a Roman street, and it's tiled, a bit like the tiles on our floor here, and uh, it's the original tiles, of course, and there's a little spring where they would go to get water. The spring still works to this day, uh, bringing water down from the mountains down to the city, which the Romans devised, and it's still working today, fresh water. A mythic temple, mythic temple down there, the remains of it, the rooms in which it was held, and the remains of rooms that were once part of a villa, and the man's called Clement on the villa. And he had a church that met in Clement's house. And it was a small room, not, not a large villa by any manner of means. And in fact, if you go to the up, next floor up, you can see in the third, fourth century building that when they moved into the fourth century building, they, they built a little area the size of Clement's living room where they would be comfortable worshipping as a church family, while visitors came and looked on to see how Christians worshipped. Anyway, all of that you can hear in about two dozen sermons that I've preached since I've been here, I'm quite sure. But the, the, the point I'm making is that the Roman church at this stage is made up of household gatherings. Now, in the, the other letters of Paul, Paul urges his readers to greet one another. Uh, In other words, welcoming one another. Here in Romans in particular, you find greetings. And Paul not just saying that as a general thing to a church that is already a cohesive body, greet one another. Like I would say to you this morning, at the end of the service, greet one another. 
This is not a cohesive body. These are households who have never been together anywhere at one time, as far as we know, ever, up until Paul sends this apostolic letter to them. And so not only does he say greet, he actually provides names and some information about those who are to be greeted. Now, he doesn't say this in any other letter, because in those other letters, there, were only, well, there was only one church group, if you like, in the city to which Paul is writing. And so what Paul is doing is introducing key names of key people uh, that you should know, and if you don't know them, he intends that you will know them uh, at this point of time. Uh, he's encouraging, in other words, all of these groups to come together in one place to hear the letter to the Romans read to them by Phoebe, and any questions they wanted to ask Phoebe about what Paul meant here or there, whatever, what do you think was in Paul's mind, she could give color to, to those and, and answer their questions. That's, that's the background. So in this chapter, he names 26 uh, people. Uh, Each seemed to be representative of the groups or gatherings that they were associated with. By naming them, Paul is putting his apostolic and theological seal of approval upon them. These are people who he's confident, truly understand the gospel, hold to the whole counsel of God, and are known for their personal integrity. He names them. Very often, Paul doesn't name people that he doesn't want you to know. In other words, uh, his way of identifying critics or opponents of the gospel, whether they're the legalistic professors that he's just referred to in earlier chapters, uh, people who don't accept his teaching on Christian freedom and liberty, or who think that they're taking the libertarians or taking it too far. Paul's, Paul's approach is just not to mention those names. By not mentioning their names, he's warning people that these people are not to be uh, regarded highly at all for their uh, soundness or their safety. They're just not safe or sound. Um, There is a name, a place, by the way, Jesus tells us, for naming and shaming people, but very often that, that should be used as sparingly as possible. Now, why greet so many people at the end of this lesson, this letter? Well, there are a number of ways we can answer that question. In five cases, Paul greets certain couples along with other Christians in their household. That's identifying, I think, one of these house churches or several of these house churches. And he does so in a way without showing partiality. I mean, he could have written the letter and just greeted the church in the house of his dearest friends, Priscilla and Aquila. But no, he wants to mention every one of them so that he misses none of them. So it would be like having a congregational meeting and mentioning every parish except Parish 6. What a mistake that would be. Uh, Or Parish 1, that would be an even bigger mistake. Did you know that the metro parish is Parish 1? There's a bit of favoritism with that number, but we choose to overlook that. Uh, it, would be like, it would be like picking out one or other and f- causing favoritism. So Paul is trying to, he's trying to de-escalate any tension that there is between the various groups. 
especially, of course, between groups of the Gentile believers who enjoy their Christian freedom with regard to the Sabbath and with regard to drinking wine and food and eating food and stuff, and the Jewish believers who are believers, but they had real conscience problems with those areas. So he doesn't want to cause tension between those groups. And he wants to promote peace and reconciliation. It's also true that he wants to commend those whom he names. And that's why he attaches some kind of praise to each name. He wants everybody in the congregation to recognize that these people they don't know over here are known to the Apostle Paul and that he regards them highly for their work in the Lord's name. And at a very, very mundane level, it is also possible that Paul is naming everybody he knows and everybody he knows about in Rome, in which case he knows quite a few, really, for somebody who's never been there. Now, that would be, uh, that would be why he's more sparing in his greetings to churches, which he knows well. When he's writing to the Ephesians or the Colossians, well, he's been there, done that, he knows them. He doesn't need to name them. He just greets the church as a whole. But here he's trying to start a relationship. He wants to come and visit Rome. So he's preparing the way for his visit. The key to the entire section is at the very end, there in verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And you can see it falls into two parts. First part includes all the believers in Rome. He wants them to greet each other. He wants this disparate group that's coming together, the various house churches that are meeting for the first time. And what is bringing them together is the apostolic letter, the authority of an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's what brings them together. And while they're sitting under this, he wants them now to turn to one another and get to know each other, to greet one another in the apostolic context. And not only that, but part two broadens it out to the entire church, Catholic. You see, the Apostle Paul is a churchman. He loves the church. He has a high ecclesiology. He doesn't regard the church as some adjunct to the preaching of the gospel. It's fundamental to Paul that believers be members of a church, that they don't dis, de, uh, de-church themselves or that they think they can get on on their own, or that they can uh, make their own way without the church in their lives. The church is our mother. The church brings us to faith. The church nourishes us when we're children. It nourishes up all the way through until we're ready to go to heaven. And if you love the churches of God, you need to love the people in the churches of God. You can't just say you love the church and not love the people. And the people belong to God. They don't belong to the minister. They don't belong to any other organization. They belong to God. He's purchased them with the blood of Christ. Well, there are 24 individual people mentioned here. Plus two others are mentioned because of their relationship to people who've been named. The mother of Rufus, for example, and the sister of Nerus. And then there are vaguer greetings to remaining members of the household churches in 
verses 5 and 11, 15 and 16. And as he is a, as an apostle, he commends the entire church to greet each individual in his name. So he doesn't ask this one to go and greet this one. He is advising the entire body gathered to greet one another. And those who are being greeted, he, he puts into categories. So there, were, there are those who are fellow workers in Christ, like uh, Priscilla and Aquila and Urbanus. There are compatriots, that is, fellow Jews, like himself, Andronicus and Junia. There are fellow prisoners, like Herodian. There are those who are beloved, he says, like Epinetus and Ampliatus and Stachus and Persis and the mother of Rufus. There are those he knows by reputation only, Epinetus and Andronicus and uh, Apelles and Rufus. There are those that are known, and there are many of those who are known, for their labors in the Lord. People like Mary and Tryphena and Tryphosa and Persis. And of the 26 named individuals in Paul's strategic list here, nine of them are women. And these nine women bear more than half of all the praises and epithets that Paul uses in this passage. That's very significant. In fact, the word that he uses to depict them and to depict their service is the word labor. He uses it of Priscilla and Mary and Junia and Tryphena and Persis and the mother of Rufus. And this is Paul's own word for himself, his own labors. He, t- he uses this word labor uh, uh, that goes right, right across the whole gamut of his Christian service. In Galatians 4, for example, he says, I'm afraid that I may have labored in vain. Talking about his evangelism in, in Galatia. Or in Philippians 2, so that on the day of Christ, I do not run in vain or have labored in vain. Paul saw his own work as labor. And he saw their work as labor in the Lord. Dr. Boyce in his uh, commentary draws our attention to the fact that Paul knew or knew of so many people in this city of Rome, a, a city he'd never visited. He says this, uh, Dr. Boyce says, I doubt that there are many of us who could name 24 people in another city, not to mention one we'd never visited. They, they didn't have social media in those days, of course, no Facebook or Google or Wikipedia to find out something about the background to these people. Paul had just kept notes. And reading these names is not just an academic exercise or an exercise in historic curiosity. We, we're reading the names of brothers and sisters of ours. These people are related to us. The spirit of glory and of God that resides in us resided in them. We're seeing a window into the early church. Look at these names. We'll just look at a few. Look at Prisca and Aquila that heads the list. Priscilla was her pet name, and that's the name that's most often used of her in the Gospels. Paul is a familiar friend. These are among his best friends. 
And the fact that he uses a familiar form of her name tells us something of the close personal bond that existed between Paul and this couple. And it tells us a lesson, teaches us a lesson, that though we are bound together with the familiarity of brothers and sisters in Christ as a church family, you can really only become close friends with a few people, and that it's okay to be close friends with a few people in church. I mean really close friends with some people in the church, without excluding everybody else or without hurting other people's feelings. It's okay to have friends among the friends of Christ. This couple are mentioned in six different places in the New Testament. We know some some things about them. We know that they were Jews from Pontus in Asia, modern Turkey. They made their way to Rome, and somehow in Rome they, they became Christians. We know that they were business people. They had a tent-making business, and their business was quite successful. We find them in Rome, in Corinth, in Ephesus, back to Rome, and then on to Ephesus again, all in the pursuit of their business career. They'd first of all settled in Rome. I think there they become Christians. We know that they were forced to leave Rome during the persecution of the Jews and Christians under the Emperor Claudius in the year 49 AD. They fled from there to Corinth. It was in Corinth that they continued their tent-making business. It was as tent-makers that the Apostle Paul bumped into them. Paul was there doing evangelizing. He'd run out of money. His supporters were not sending him their tithes to support his work. And as most intellectuals were in those days, they'd not only been to university, but before going to university, went to several universities, he had learned a trade. The trade he'd learned was tent making. And so Paul, the tent maker, in order to make money for himself and his ministry, joined forces with this couple, and he worked from their premises. And together they talked, and they got to know each other over the work of tent making. And he would go off and preach, of course, the evenings or late afternoons or whenever. And they would work together from day to day. They got to know Paul very, very well. We read all about that in Acts chapter 18. And when Paul left Corinth... En route to Syria, they went with him. They traveled as far as Ephesus, where they remained, and set up their business again there. And it was while they were in Ephesus that they met a young Alexandrian Jew, that is, a North African Jew who converted to Judaism, who then converted to John the Baptismism. (laughs) John the Baptism. I don't know how you say it, ism. He, he had he'd heard about Jesus, and he believed in Jesus, but he only believed in Jesus to the degree that John the Baptist had taught some of his disciples about Jesus. He'd only ever known, we're told, the baptism of John. And it was Priscilla and Aquila who invited him into their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. We don't know why it is that Priscilla usually gets named first, Priscilla and Aquila. I think twice 
it's Aquila and Priscilla. But mostly it's Priscilla and Aquila. Was she wealthy? And uh, somebody socially higher than her husband? We don't know. Or was she just more outgoing than her husband was? You know, some, some guys, you're married to women who've got more personality than you have. I'm not going to name and shame you, but, but it's just the reality that's true. And maybe she was like that. Maybe she had more personality than her husband. She was a bit more, you know, uh, outgoing, less introverted. <laughs> I speak to a congregation of introverts every week who understand me because I am too. Well, whatever the reason, she knew her Bible and she was able to help Apollos get on his feet, grasp the truth as it is in Jesus, and become in time an effective gospel preacher. Paul mentions that. And he mentions, too, the church that meets in their house. The church that meets in their house. And the most significant thing he says about them in Romans 16.3 is that they had risked their necks for Paul's life. That means they had risked execution. That is a chopping off of their heads. That's what he means. We don't know the details about this. It may have happened in Ephesus. We know that Paul was with them, came back to Ephesus where they were after he'd evangelized things to the, to the east. He came back to Ephesus. And we know that on one occasion, while he was preaching, there was a great disturbance in the city. Basically, a riot broke out after he preached. Now, I want to say a word to the elders of 10th. At least I haven't caused a riot yet. <laughs> Paul caused a riot in Ephesus. And uh, it was pretty, things were broken. Lots of things were broken. Burnings took place. Not burnings of people, but burnings of stuff. And it was a total, total chaos. And Paul was at risk of his own life. We don't know whether he sheltered in, in their home or, or what it was, but, but we know that Paul writing about this, we think writing about this in Second Corinthians says that he was despairing even of life. And of feeling within himself, as it were, that he was already sentenced to death. And it was this that he was delivered from. And they were with him. They were at risk with him. And Paul has another reason to praise them. All the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Could that be because Paul, of Paul's deliverance and their part in it? Maybe they were highly connected and they got him off the hook of of uh, being put in jail and eventually being executed himself. We don't know. We're surmising some of that. But he is saying himself that as a result of what they did, all the churches of the Gentiles that are hearing the gospel are grateful for this family, this couple, and what they did for the apostle. And Paul's final reference to Priscilla and Aquila is found in his appeal to the Roman audience not only to greet them, but to greet the church in their house. You see, one thing about this couple is this. That wherever they found themselves, in Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, or back in Rome, or back in Ephesus, they were active as Paul's co-workers. 
in many, many ways, I'm sure, but it, in the least of them, offering their own home as a venue where the church could meet. Uh, so, so much so that uh, Eponetus could probably vouch for their faithfulness. Paul calls him the first convert to Christ in Asia. Was he converted in their house? Paul had long wanted to go to Asia. He was kept from going there by the Holy Spirit. He tried, he tried the first time he went to Ephesus. didn't work out. Try the second time and then a third time when it did work. And he was able to say all the Jews and Gentiles who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And Eponetus may have been one of the first to be converted there. The second couple he mentions are Andronicus and Junia. They're either a couple or they're a brother and sister. Junia is a woman, by the way. You'll notice in the footnotes here that it says, or Junias, which is a masculine. Well, here's the news. This was supplied uh, in hundreds of years later because people didn't want people thinking that Junia was an apostle, as it says she is here. And we'll look at this in a moment. And in some modern versions, the masculine is used. But here's the deal. Now that we're at this stage in history where we have all the access to all the, uh, all the, the ability to do word searches and to go back in history and to see uses of words, nobody has ever found one single case in which the, the name Junius existed in any form anywhere in the ancient world. It was made up. It was made up to turn this woman into a man for the purposes, you can understand, of uh, church politics at the time. Well, what can we say about Andronicus and Junia? We can say, first of all, that they were his kinsmen. That's what he calls them, fellow Jews. They may even have been relatives, we don't know. They were fellow Jews. They were fellow prisoners. Both of them had, shared, had done their time inside. In other words, they had suffered along with the Apostle Paul for the sake of the gospel. They not only believed in Christ, they had suffered for his sake. Thirdly, we're told that they were outstanding among the apostles. Outstanding among the apostles. Well-known and outstanding, held in high regard among the apostles. That is what the text straightforwardly says. And that's why so much time and effort has been given to try and make it say otherwise. There would not be any debate if Junia had been a man. But here is a woman being commended as an apostle. Now, of course, one of the issues that you will raise if you've got your brain in action still is that I thought the apostles had authority over the church. We say that we believe in one holy apostolic, Catholic and apostolic church, and that is absolutely true. But whenever authority and the apostles are being mentioned, the foundational aspect of their role in the life of the church, it usually applies if not always applies to the twelve 
including or plus the Apostle Paul. Do you see what I'm saying? There are 12 foundations of New Jerusalem, and the names of the apostles are on them, the 12 apostles of the Lamb. That's the authoritative foundation of the churches. But we know from the Gospels that there were at least 72 apostles sent out by Jesus. And we know on the day of Pentecost when all the apostles were together, there were women with them. So what does it mean for her to be an apostle? Well, what does Acts chapter 1 tell you are the marks of an apostle? The marks of an apostle are that you had to have been with Jesus from the beginning and been there in all the aspects of his earthly career, that is, his public ministry, from the beginning up until his death and resurrection. And we know because we're told in the Gospels that there were women who were with Jesus and the apostles, the disciples, the whole way through Jesus' ministry. We know that we're there in the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fell. We know, for example, that in the list of spiritual gifts for the whole church, apostle is one of those gifts. We know that the word apostle can have a general meaning, those who are sent on a mission, for example. And uh, many of us know of women who have been workers, missionaries, evangelists, apologists, among women and men. This woman, particularly, had been to prison for her faith. In Paul's world, a woman would never have been incarcerated without having made some public statement deemed to be unacceptable by the powers that be. Why does Paul mention her? He mentions her because the world then was the same as the world now. The world then was, uh, in certain circles, as patriarchal as deposits of evangelicals can be here in America in the 21st century. It's nothing to do with egalitarianism. It's nothing to do with feminism. It's to do with the new thing that's happened in Christ. This woman was able to stand up in meetings and give her testimony. I was there when Jesus fed the 5,000. I was there when he raised somebody from the dead. I was there when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. I was there when he was thirsty and needed a drink. I was there when they crucified my Lord. These apostles in the early church were necessary as the eye and ear witnesses of Jesus. So we can distinguish between the twelve, including or adding Paul, as the authority whose writings we take as Holy Scripture and other apostles who were there simply at that time to bear witness to what they'd seen and heard. And a vital witness it was. And just to make it clear that that's the way in which we're to look at Junia, look at the fourth thing that he says about them. He says, they were in Christ before him. 
They were in Christ before him. That would place them among those first Christians who walked with Jesus and talked with him and who were there to see and there to hear what Jesus did and said and who were called, sent out to commend Christ to the nations. Now we are, I think, struck by the very high place of honor that women occupy in Paul's mind and in his world. We've seen Phoebe, a deaconess, Junia, praised as an apostle. Mary, who worked hard in the Lord. Tryphosa, who with her husband or brother were workers in the Lord. Persis, the sister who worked hard in the Lord. Rufus's mother, who had cared for Paul. And we ought to honor the women who work hard for the kingdom of God. And they don't just work hard in the kitchen. They work hard in the word that they teach to their children, that they share with their compatriots, that they share in the, in the Bible study group that you're in. They work hard serving the Lord. We ought to honor the women who serve the Lord, just as Paul does here. And the, pro, pro, the pro prominence of women in the mission to the Gentiles in the early church had an impact. And that impact has remained to this day. Most of the followers of Jesus in the world are women. The typical Christian in the world is a black African woman. Now, I say that not because we men are now to go cringing away and leave it all to the women. I think the reason why there are so many commands in the Bible for men to do things is because we, our tendency is to let the women do it. And we need to crucify that tendency. But not only crucify the tendency, but encourage the women in the church. Encourage them by praising them, by affirming them, by having their back, by releasing them to do the things that God has gifted and called them to do to the glory of his name. Okay. The whole section then ends with an apostolic command. The apostles under Christ, that is, the 12 plus Paul or including Paul, they are the real authority in the church. They are the real authority in the church. So we better listen when Paul gives us a command Here's his command. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That command stands today, by the way. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, I can think some of you might be freaking out at this point. You don't want, you don't want that scrungy old man there to come hovering over you, wait at the door so that you can get, grab a kiss when you're least expecting it. <laughs> You don't want that to happen, do you? That's why the word holy is in there. <laughs> this is not, this is not, there's no erotic overtones here. Greet one another with a holy kiss. In fact, what he intends is that men kiss men as well. And in Ukraine, somebody was reminding me in the break, uh, because that's what people in the church here do. They remind me of things that I have failed to say. But the church in the Ukraine, uh, Christians in the Ukraine will kiss one another as they enter 
into church. It's a command. Uh, For example, in, in Scripture, Simon, in the Gospels, is noted in the Bible for not giving Jesus a kiss. Judas is noted in the Bible for giving Jesus a kiss that is supposed to be a kiss of love and peace, and in fact, it's a kiss of betrayal. Peter says, greet one another with a kiss of love in 1 Peter 5. And Paul himself gives the same command to another four churches to whom he writes. In other words, this was a common thing among Christians in the first century. And it's meant to be affectionate, far more affectionate than a a limp, wet handshake could ever be. Now, I need to address the elephant in the room here. We just as a church have had to address a subject that was raised by session about drinking wine at communion. And we did that because that's what the Bible says. I probably need to reassure you that as far as I know, session has absolutely no plans to implement the holy kiss (laughs) in our services. But if they ever do, you'll be the first to know. I'm not sure what we can do as an alternative. But but seriously, uh, I say that jokingly, but you understand that the principle is, like over the the years, um, and this would be the the case in most denominations and churches, up until just after the Reformation, actually, uh, in most church services, there would actually be a place in the service where the congregation were asked to turn around and give the kiss of peace to each other in the service. So, th- so that was bar- part and parcel of the liturgy of those churches. And there's something to it. And I don't know how we, we create something that people are comfortable with. Yeah, so I, I know that although you all come from different eth- ethnicities, there's enough of the English reserve still in there in the DNA somewhere that would make you cringe at the very thought of it. Uh, And so I shouldn't really press the matter. But the principle is, here's here's the apostle talking to these people who don't know each other. He wants them to reach out to each other in greeting. He wants to bring this, this motley crew of people, Christian people, who've been on their own little groups And they're here together to hear the Apostle's letter. And he wants them to take the opportunity of being all together in one place to greet each other warmly in Christ. Well, you could do that, couldn't you? And we do it to the glory of God. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, we thank you for this insight into the way Christianity works in the first century and the way in which it should work today. And we pray that we would honor each other greatly in the Lord, men and women, each honoring the other and esteeming the other better than themselves and being subject each to the other in the family of God. And we pray, Lord, that you would use all of our endeavors, all of our labors for the growth of your kingdom and the glory of your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.